Good morning, everyone. So we'll continue in our our sermon series on the book of Psalms. It's only sort of a sermon series. We're just kind of picking Psalms here and there as we go along through the summer. Uh, It allows us to to have a series, but you don't need to feel like if you're away visiting family or serving at a camp for a week or two that you've missed something and you're coming back in not knowing what's going on. We're going to look at Psalm 30 today, uh, and that psalm talks, as we've already said, about mourning into dancing. Now, I think in our kind of largely... Anglo North American culture, we, we tend to see dance and think about dance often as a, as a form of performance art, right? In musical theater, sometimes on, you know, reality TV shows, Broadway, that sort of thing. Has anyone ever seen uh, any of these old movies with, with Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers? Like, man, that man had the moves. Um, just makes you want to tap along when you see somebody that can dance skillfully like that. But of course, seeing dance as kind of a performance thing that is largely a spectator event is kind of a, kind of a new thing, even in our culture. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that kind of every little small town, right, people would get together on a Saturday or a Friday night, and there were things like square dances everybody would go to and participate in. It was something that people did together. And if we step back even a little bit further than that and, and kind of look at culture more broadly, especially those cultures that we might label, I guess, traditional cultures or those cultures that have preserved more of their traditional heritage, we can see dance serves a bigger purpose. I'm not really qualified to talk about this as much, but we can think of our First Nations people in our own land and, and the storytelling and the cultural heritage that is preserved through the dances they do. And you'll, you'll often note they're done together. They're often done Uh, everybody gathers around in a circle and gathers together to perform these dances. Or we might think of the the indigenous people of New Zealand and uh, their their haka, their their war dance challenge. And that's been adapted and preserved throughout the centuries, right, in different contexts, in in modern war and, uh, of course, in athletics as well. You might think of the New Zealand All Blacks. They gather together, they do their dance together uh, to challenge their rivals. And so it's not only a challenge to their rivals, but the lyrics that they, they sing while they dance are often about standing together, standing strong, Uh, And it's something that preserves their team identity as well as cultural identity. Because there's something primal about gathering together and doing these dances uh, that, that is something we don't often understand. But maybe you remember even how King David danced before the Lord. Uh, when he brought the Ark of God's Covenant up into Jerusalem. And for some reason, I've always imagined him dancing like a Russian Cossack. I I don't know that that's all that likely, but it says he was dancing and leaping, and so that's kind of what I've always imagined in my head. Um, It's just kind of an odd quirk. But once it's in there, you can't quite get it out. Uh, But the connection with King David does bring us back around to... uh, our psalm for today, which is another one of King David's psalms. So I'd invite you to stand for our reading of God's word, as we normally do for our sermon text. We'll turn to Psalm 30. Psalm 30, and we'll read, we'll read the whole psalm. A psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up, and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. 
Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry. To the Lord, I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death? If I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. This is God's word. You may have a seat. So I don't know if we've talked about uh, the superscriptions that are part of the Psalms recently. A lot of our Bibles provide us with information at the start of the Psalms, and there's two types. Some of them are translation-specific, and some of them aren't. So there's headings, and there's summaries. So, for instance, the ESV in this one has, Joy comes with the morning, at least in in my copy. This is like the Sermon on the Mount, right? Where the the translators break it up into different sections and they put little headings in there. Build your house on the rock, the golden rule, and so forth. Those aren't part of the actual Bible text. Those are just things that the translators of English Bibles or any other language, they put headers in there to break the chapters up into smaller sections. Different translations of the Bible do it differently or not at all. But there are these superscriptions in the Psalms that are a little bit different. They're unique to the Psalms. In my translation in front of me, the ESV that I have, uh, a Psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple, is printed in all capital letters. These are actually part of the Hebrew text of the Psalm. In in the Hebrew, they're verse 1 of the Psalm. So what's going on there? Well, most scholars and translators agree that these superscriptions are very old, although probably not part of the actual psalm that David wrote. They were probably added later on by editors who gathered the book of Psalms into the form that we have today uh, in ancient times, though. It's kind of a balancing act. We don't want to, we don't want to uh, say that it's not part of God's word, but the translators are trying to signify that this is part of the Hebrew text, but maybe not part of the original psalm that David wrote. And this one, like I said, begins with a psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple. And it's kind of odd, at least on a couple levels, because for one, uh, David didn't dedicate the temple. He was, he was passed away before that happened. Solomon dedicated the temple, so that's a little bit interesting. And the other interesting thing is, This is a song, as far as we can see, that's about an individual who went through a very difficult time, uh, sickness, it seems, and was healed and restored, but it doesn't seem like it really has anything to do with a communal or a state function like dedicating the temple. So that's, that's a little bit interesting. Jewish tradition connects Psalm 30 with the rededication of the temple in the Maccabean times in the festival of of Hanukkah. I don't know if you know the story, but this is just this is a little interesting side detour. It's no extra charge for that. Uh, in, in the intertestamental times, uh, after the people had come back from exile and they had rebuilt their temple, uh, there, there was a period when their 
Their Greek overlords kind of came in and cracked down on them and suppressed the worship of the Jewish people. And then Judas Maccabees, he led a revolt to kick the the Greeks out because Antiochus Epiphanes, their Greek overlord, had desecrated the temple. He had stopped the sacrifices. He had said that they should worship Zeus instead and had desecrated the altar. And so the Jewish people led a revolt and then they rededicated their temple and they had this eight-day festival, the Feast of Dedication, which Jewish people still celebrate uh, in December usually each year as, as Hanukkah. That's not terribly relevant to our passage today, but I wonder if maybe you can see how this psalm about somebody that went through a very difficult time where it seemed like all hope was lost and then God restored them would be relevant to the Jewish people in that situation and how maybe that's how it came to be associated with the rededication of the temple. You see, what David speaks about on a personal level certainly is applicable on a communal or even national level at that time. Last week we looked at how Psalm 19 was broken into three sections. If you were here, you remember we talked about the first section where David looks at the heavens and sees that they reveal the glory of God. And then the second section where he looks at God's word and sees how pure and holy and wonderful it is. And then the third section where he looks at his own soul and tries to to deal with what he sees there that isn't exactly so pure and, and wonderful. This psalm has kind of an interesting structure as well. The first section, verses 1 to 5, could kind of stand on their own. David indicates that he's determined to praise God in verse 1 because God has delivered him from enemies, second half of verse 1, and from sickness, verses 2 and 3. And this in turn prompts him to encourage his fellow Israelites to praise God as well in verse 4 because God's favor is great and a more lasting reality than his anger in verse 5. And then the second section in the rest of the psalm kind of goes back over that same material and David provides a little bit more information about what happened to him, the difficulty he went through, and and how God restored him to to favor. And, And then David's continuing response to that at the very end in verse 12. That's the structure of the poem. And we need to kind of see that to understand the logic a bit better. But as we go through it together today, I'll take it in a little bit different order. Uh, instead of the order that it's written in, we'll kind of go in, in the order that, the, the logical order or the chronological order instead. And I, I kind of hate to do this to such beautiful poetry, but it will help us to understand it. And so that's where we'll begin actually in verse 6 instead of verse 1. We don't know uh, the exact circumstances of David's life that point, and that's not really the point actually, there are a number of things in David's life that could be applicable here and scholars kind of debate about that, but at the end of the day we have to realize the Bible doesn't tell us every detail of every character's story. There are things that are left out, Uh, so we don't know exactly what David's talking about, the difficulty he went through, but I think in a way it's applicable to all of us in a way. David begins from a place of prosperity. There are a couple of ways to take that statement in verse 6 where he says, in my prosperity I said or I thought I shall never be moved. One could understand that as a statement of a bit of arrogance or complacency like life was going well and he thought nothing can touch me, I'm kind of on top of the world. One could also just take it as as a statement of appropriate confidence in God, right? He's just saying, things are going well, the Lord has blessed me, my enemies have been subdued, things are going well. 
He does indicate in the following verses that this prosperity and security was a gift from God, right? He he acknowledges the Lord made his mountain stand firm. It wasn't something he achieved for himself. You know, it's kind of like what we read about in the book of Job, right? Job, was Job a good man? Absolutely, right? He, He was a man favored by God. Did he do anything to deserve the calamity and the suffering that came on him? Doesn't seem to have done. And yet, there are some hints toward the end of the book of Job that maybe there was some complacency in his heart and that sort of thing might have, might have been a problem for him. And, and maybe the same thing was true here for David. You know, friends, it can be so easy in a time of, of prosperity, good health, and success, even when we acknowledge that those are gifts from God, to get a little bit complacent. In that, in that stage of life, right? We can so easily say with our mouths that our prosperity or our good health or so forth are gifts from God, but inwardly we can get a bit complacent and, and we can sort of start to have unchallenged assumptions that maybe, maybe this is just the way life should be, right? This is, this is ours. This is our right. But David's season of prosperity came to an abrupt end. He says things were going well, but then God hid his face. Hiding the face and the the positive lifting up the face, those are Hebrew idioms that have a deep meaning. It goes beyond just paying attention to somebody or not paying attention to them, right? Lifting up the face is to acknowledge somebody and and hiding the face is not just to ignore them, but it's kind of to to say that they're dead to you, to reject them. And that's how David felt. Whatever he went through was severe and he felt abandoned and forsaken by God. From what he says in verse 2, you healed me, it seems like the problem was sickness or perhaps injury. And maybe that Psalm 38, we don't have to turn there today, but you could read it later if you want. It goes into much more detail about David suffering a time of intense sickness where he thought maybe he was going to die. It could be that those are, these two Psalms are talking about the same event in his life. It might be sickness in your situation, you or someone else, right? You, we've, many of us will have heard those difficult words spoken to us or spoken to somebody that we care about, right? You have cancer or words like, I'm afraid there's nothing more that we can do. Uh, maybe it wasn't that. Maybe it was words like, I'm afraid we're going to have to let you go from this position. Could be lots of things loss of employment you didn't see coming, breakdown in a significant relationship that you didn't see coming, took you unawares. These things come at us and they blindside us. And few of us are going to get through life without them, right? We, we will know these in our past or if we haven't, we will know them in our future. There will be something that will come out of nowhere that we weren't expecting, we didn't see coming, and it hits us. And we go from confident assurance to just flat on our faces, just in a matter of minutes sometimes. And sometimes there's reasons these things happen to us, but sometimes there are no reasons at all that we can discern, humanly speaking. They just happen. David was clearly in a bad place. In verse 3, he talks about God bringing him up from Sheol or from the pit Uh, depending on what translation you have. Sheol is a difficult thing to translate from Hebrew into English. We don't really have a corresponding idea in our language or even in our worldview to explain this. 
right? In, in the ancient Israelite mind and prior to a more developed theology of life after death that we get, for instance, in the New Testament, uh, Sheol or Hades in the corresponding Greek was the underworld, this kind of shadowy place of departed spirits. It wasn't just a spiritual place, though. It, it was kind of connected to actually being the underworld, literally kind of down under the ground somewhere. And the grave or the pit or sometimes the sea was the actual literal gateway that you could go there. Um, and, and so David feels like he's being pulled down into this pit, into this underworld. If you've seen the Lord of the Rings films or you've read the books, the scene where the, the heroes take the paths of the dead and encounter the, the shadowy spirits, there's something like that, minus the weird green CGI effects. Something like that. It's down under the ground in this dark place. And David was in such bad shape, he felt like he was almost there. He was getting pulled down into that place. I think today we'd probably say he experienced a, a near-death experience. Whatever happened was serious enough that from his own perspective, he thought he was as good as dead. He expected he was going to die. He was done for. Humanly speaking, it was hopeless. But that wasn't the end of his story. God intervened. God raised him up from going down to the pit. God gave him his life back. There's a lot there that I just want to talk about, but I'm going to exercise some self-control and wait until the end, and we'll come back to that. Because it's big. So just hold those thoughts about being raised up from the pit. David presents a number of vivid illustrations that explain what that transformation was like of God bringing him up from the pit and restoring him, of how God intervened in his life. And for my money, these are, these are the heart and soul of the Psalms because this is poetry and poetry really works in images. And these are some very vivid images. And again, I'm kind of reluctant to spend too much time explaining them because they're kind of like, poetry is kind of like a joke. If you do too much explaining of it, you kind of explain it away. But it's important, especially because we're reading it in translation, to understand exactly what's going on here. His anger is but for a moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. This is, this is the heart of God's character as revealed, right? Remember Exodus 34, where Moses asks to see God, and God says, no, I, I can't show you my glory, it would kill you, but what I will do, I will pass by, and I will proclaim my divine name. And it says here, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is, this is the heart of God's character, right? He is a God who has anger and who has wrath, and a God of favor and blessing. But in, in the Bible, it tells us that his wrath and his anger, while it is real, gives way to his favor and his blessing. As I said before, we can't exactly be sure what was going on in David's life. But I do wonder with the mention of God's anger followed by God's favor, if what he went through wasn't some kind of divine discipline, maybe for complacency or, or something else that was going on in his life. In any case, he came to realize that even if the difficulties that he faced were part of God's disciplining him, 
that that was only secondary. That, that was to achieve something else, right? That was to achieve the experience of God's favor and blessing on the other side of it. The discipline, the anger, that was temporary only to get to the place of divine blessing, favor, and love. His anger is a moment. His favor is a lifetime. God slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Now let's remember that as we worship God together this morning and as we face whatever is going on in our lives. The next picture kind of mirrors this previous one, but it focuses on our response rather than, than God's character. It's an interesting phrase in the Hebrew, right? In, in the English Standard Version that I have, it says, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. It's an interesting phrase in the Hebrew. The Hebrew word is lean, and it means to, to lodge for the night. It's used in Genesis 19. Uh, when Jacob went and spent the night at Bethel, right? Remember, he slept on the rock for a pillow and he had that dream or that vision of the angels of God going up and down on the stairway that went up to heaven and God spoke to him and promised to bring him back safe, to be with him. It's used again in Jacob's story in Genesis 32 when Jacob sent his family on ahead when he was about to meet his brother Esau and he stayed behind. He remained behind for the night in the camp and wrestled with God. It's used in 2 Samuel 12 when King David passed the night laying prostrate on the earth, praying and pleading with the Lord that the Lord would spare the child that he had conceived with Bathsheba. In that case, the night spent in weeping was tragically not followed by a morning of rejoicing. And so this psalm, we can't press it so literally to, to try to make it a promise that we only have to spend one night in a difficult circumstances and then God is bound just to reverse and change that for us, right? Even King David knew that that was not always the case and I think that's why he's so full of praise because he sees that this is a blessing from God. This isn't something he earned or deserved. This is God's granting of favor to him. The point here is that we have a vivid picture of weeping in the face of difficulty or discipline, followed by restoration and joy, right? The, the storm has passed, the sun has come up, the morning is here, the birds are singing. Weeping spent the night in your home, whether that's you, your soul or whatever, but it's not permanent. The next picture, uh, he says, you loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. Wearing sackcloth during a time of mourning or fasting or repentance uh, was a kind of a common practice. It's not something we, we do much in our culture. You know, our, kind of the odd thing about our, our mourning customs in North American culture or our funeral customs, it's kind of just whatever you want it to be. There's kind of no, no single cultural thing that people do anymore. And that is, it is kind of what it is. Um, it wasn't that long ago that, that people would, in a time of mourning, they would dress in black for a set period of time after someone passed away. Sometimes, if, uh, if a woman lost her husband in particular, she might take to wearing black uh, for the rest of her life, or at least for a long, long period of time, as a sign of mourning. And we have this vivid word picture that moves us, though, from something concrete to something that's a spiritual reality. I mean, the normal, the kind of concrete thing would be, well, you removed my sackcloth and then I put my normal clothes back on. But that's not what it says. It says, you removed my sackcloth and clothed me 
with not normal clothes, but with gladness, right? The, the change is so dramatic in David's life that it's not just sufficient to say he put his mourning clothes off and put his normal clothes back on. What he's saying is that, that the joy and gladness he experienced was so real and vivid in his life, it was like he was clothed in it. Clothed with joy itself. That's a common image throughout Scripture. All right, spiritual realities are often depicted using the image of putting on different clothing. We might think of uh, Colossians chapter 3, where the Apostle Paul talks about putting on uh, these different virtues. It's kind of a parallel list to the fruit of the Spirit. Or right, Ephesians 6, that's probably the one we'd all think of, right? Where he talks about arming yourself spiritually, using the metaphor of a soldier putting on his armor for battle. But here, though, David is clear. He didn't do this for himself. It wasn't just he made up his mind, okay, I'm not going to be sad anymore, and I'm going to do this for myself. The language is causative. It says that God removed his sackcloth, and God clothed him with gladness. And the final one, and it's the title of the psalm, turned mourning into dancing. I kind of said a moment ago, most cultures of the world have pretty established mourning customs. And our North American culture is kind of a little bit different. I mean, part of that is just we have so many cultures that have come to this part of the world and called it home that we don't have kind of established customs anymore. Now, my own family is pretty, pretty traditional in this regard. And so uh, it's kind of odd to me that people wouldn't have, for instance, a wake or, or a viewing for the deceased person. It's just kind of my, my own family culture. And, and, of course, for some people, that would be very, very uncomfortable if, if that's not something you're used to. But it, it, the type of mourning that David is speaking about here, it is connected to the idea of mourning for somebody that's passed away. Again, this speaks to the, the depth of his situation. Basically, he was not mourning for someone else that passed away. He was mourning for himself because he was sure that was the direction he was going. Right? And it actually can mean wailing. Right, Because in, in many other cultures, mourning isn't kind of a subdued thing the way it often is here. People wail, they might roll around on the ground, or there's certain ritual gestures they make. It's a very intense kind of grief. Here's where things get really interesting, at, at least I think so. I've, we've had a few Hebrew word lessons today, and we'll have one more. Uh, the term used here for dancing is mechol. Now, there's other terms for dancing. Hebrew has a whole host of words that can be used for dancing. This is a different term than when King David danced before the Lord in that, uh, before the Ark of the Covenant when they brought it up to Jerusalem. Um, in modern Hebrew, it's actually the word that signifies the discipline of dance. Like if you were to go and, and study dance at a conservatory, you would study mechol. In the Bible, it's... it's it's from the root that means to go around. And in the Bible, it's usually used to mean a communal dance. Uh, I think the idea is dancing in a circle together with your community. It's often used uh, when there's a victory, when they win a battle, and the people go out and they dance before the Lord to celebrate the battle being won. It's a communal dance. Think of, think of to, to kind of at least get the culture a little bit closer to ancient Israelites, uh, think of Fiddler on the Roof, right? If you've seen the movie or maybe you saw when Summer Stage did it not that long ago, uh, what do they do, right? They all, they clasp hands and they make a circle and they dance around in, when they're celebrating, right? Think of, think of the wedding scene in Fiddler on the Roof, right? They're celebrating, it's joyful, they make the circle, they dance around, everybody is excited, 
So what's the point of this? Well, I think when David talks about the Lord turning his mourning into dancing, he's talking about something more than just the psychological state of being sad and then being happy afterward. He's thinking about talking and and encouraging us to think in ways that are bigger than just that. There's something profoundly social and communal going on as well. Because if you look at what he's talking about when he was doing so poorly and, and in this time of great distress and sickness, he was isolated and he felt like he was being cut off from the people of Israel and his community and going down alone into the pit. But when God restored him, God restored him not just to a state of psychological well-being, but to well-being in the context of his community. Right? Restoring him, God's putting him back in his place in the community, and he can celebrate and be part of that once again. Sing praise. This is uh, the last point before we conclude, but David's response is praise. In the final verse, he indicates that he will praise God for his deliverance. Earlier in the psalm, verse 4, he urges God's people to give thanks and praise, right? Likely on his behalf, as well as if similar things have happened in their own lives. So here's the thing. Thankfulness requires expression, vocal, publicly, when appropriate, if it's to be complete, right? Thankfulness in our heads or in our hearts, that's great, that, that edifies us to a certain extent. But when we can share that thankfulness in thanksgiving, even publicly or around our family tables at home or, or in any other context where it's appropriate, it does something for us to actually say the words out loud. It does something for us, but of course it also does something for other people to encourage them that the Lord is good and the Lord is faithful. But, but what if... Weeping hasn't just come to to stay at your home, whether your physical home or the the home of your heart or your soul. What if it hasn't just come for a night, but what if it's come for many nights and it seems that the day will never dawn, right? Or what if you spent that night weeping and trusting that God would bring you joy in the morning and bring you restoration, but he didn't? Has God failed? Has, Has his word proved untrue? Well, as I mentioned earlier, even David knew this in his own life, right? He literally spent a night, and it might have been more nights. The text isn't exactly clear in 2 Samuel. He might have spent a whole week weeping and laying on the earth, uh, praying that his child would not die, but the Lord took that child anyhow. And we can say that, yes, David committed adultery and he set up a murder in order to, to cover up his sin with Bathsheba and this child was conceived in sin and it was the Lord's judgment. But still, even so, there, there's not much more gutting than a parent watching their, their child slip away. And that was, that David went through that. David understood that sometimes really tragic things happen in life. This is written from the perspective of someone who knows firsthand that God's deliverance isn't just a given. It's not just automatic. It's not that if you just have enough faith and muster up enough feeling, God will come through for you. But it goes even deeper than that. Remember how David talked about how he, how he felt like he was getting dragged down to the pit, to Sheol, how he was almost there, the lights had almost gone out for him, and then God restored him? But of course we know, we know the one who didn't 
almost go there. Right? What is it we confess about Jesus if we say the Apostles' Creed, right? He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He was buried. He descended, different translations have it differently, to the dead, to hell, to Hades. Jesus didn't just almost get there and then was restored by God. Jesus went all the way down to the bottom. He descended to the dead. He went all the way down and he did it for us. But like in this psalm, and this is where I wanted to go earlier, but I had to have self-control and save it for the end, God raised him up, right? This is this resurrection language that's being used in this psalm. I think it points forward to the one who was ultimately raised up from the pit, Jesus. Not just up from sickness, not just from a bad circumstances, but up from death, and in doing so, conquering death as he rose from the dead. That's, that's the core of the gospel, right? What is it the apostles go around preaching all the time? You open the book of Acts, you go to chapter 2 where Peter preaches the first sermon and that's what it's all about. You crucified this Jesus, but God raised him up. That's what so scandalized the Jewish people and so puzzled the pagans about the apostles preaching. That they preached that this, this man who was put to death in a terrible and shameful way as a criminal was, was raised up by God and declared to be the savior of the world in power. You killed him, but God raised him up. God raised him up from the dead, and we are all witnesses, and we proclaim it to you. That's the apostles' testimony. That's the gospel. And this psalm is pointing us toward there, if we have eyes to see it. And what is it that Paul then spends like pretty much the rest of the New Testament going on about? God raised us up together with him. We were buried in Christ with baptism and then raised to walk in newness of life. Right? Christ is the first fruits, and we will share in a resurrection like his. That's, that's the hope, even if the reversal of circumstances doesn't come in this life. Even if that night of weeping isn't followed by a morning of earthly rejoicing. God raising us up from our difficulties in this life is wonderful. And when it does happen... We should thank him and we should rejoice and we should declare it publicly as that's appropriate and as we have opportunities. But God raising us up on the last day is the ultimate healing of all hurts. That's the ultimate turning of mourning into dancing. I think it's appropriate. It's not explicit in this psalm. But the idea of of mourning speaks to, to... It's funeral language and the idea of rejoicing and dancing as wedding language, right? How I even alluded to Fiddler on the Roof and how they dance for joy at a wedding in that film. And it seems like that's the kind of imagery that David is getting at here. And isn't that the imagery that the New Testament presents us with as well? The joy of being invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb in God's eternal kingdom? There will be joy there, I dare say there will be some dancing there and we might have to learn how to do that when we get there because some of us don't know how yet or aren't accustomed or comfortable with that but we might have to get comfortable doing it uh, with the Lord in his kingdom because that will be the ultimate turning of mourning into dancing. The New Testament says God will wipe away every tear from every eye. That's an amazing thought. And 
as we move to close our worship service this morning, we're going to celebrate that and we're going to proclaim it together. So I would invite those that are going to be helping with serving communion and our our worship team to come back up here. Uh, Because what is it we we do when we we gather around the Lord's table? We remember 